Uh, let's um, let's open in God's word. Let's open in prayer. Um, Father, thank you for this uh, long uh, walk through your scripture and the many ways um, in which you communicate to us, um, the, the varied ways. Father, we um, want to approach it with humility and yet also um, with expectation that you will meet us as we approach your word. Help us to do it in a way that's thoughtful and not careless, um, that considers um, all that you say about yourself and how you communicate um, rather than our own um, selfish motives. Um, bless our discussion of um, this now, especially as we're getting into um, things that are complicated. Um, give us grace and um, clarity of, of uh, mind as we think about these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we, um, we're in the last, believe it or not, we're in the last uh, session of Bible interpretation. And we, uh, because of a number of factors, we needed to shrink this, this class down um, to uh, drop off maybe four or five lessons. So you're getting most of the New Testament in one shot here. <laughs> so we did a flyby of the Gospels last time and only got really halfway through. Um, this time we're going to finish up the Gospels and uh, then talk about Paul. Um, but where we left things um, was, is really worth uh, recapping a bit. So if you have one of these handouts, um, you want to look at the first uh, diagram of it. Um, yeah, I think they're, they're kind of on that. Maybe the extras are on that table over there. Because if we approach the New Testament simply as uh, the same culture, the same experience that we have here in 2016, uh, we're really going to be confused by a lot of things. And we're not going um, to understand why Jesus says the things he says, um, why his opponents say the things they do. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll start to uh, have sort of lazy interpretations um, it'll, it can re result to wrecking real ha wreaking real havoc in our faith. Um, so thinking about the context draws us back to into the Old Testament and the expectation of the prophets. Last time we saw how, thank you guys, where's the crowds around the cake? Okay, thank you. Um, Last time we saw how the prophets dealt with a crisis. Does anybody remember the major crisis that was going on in the prophetic period? It's just, just by way of getting you guys talking. Exxon, yes. Eg the exile. I say eg exile. The God's people were brought from the promised land away from the temple um, off into a foreign land um, ruled by a foreign people. Now, why is this such a crisis? Other than that's like a miserable thing for that to happen to somebody, why is that such a crisis? Good, right. The temple. The temple gets uh, basically desecrated. Um, they're far from it. There's, they're apart from the sacrifices. Um, so that's one pillar. What's the other? What's, what's another factor? 
similar to that. What else are they they removed from? Okay, yeah, maybe maybe culture, maybe the things that you know they're they're now gonna um, blend in a little bit more and be influenced by a foreign culture. But specifically think about the promises that God had been making all throughout the Old Testament. Yes, some of those promises are tied to the temple as the temple as a sign pointing to his fulfillment. But what are some other signs pointing to the fulfillment, the final day fulfillment? What did he promise Abraham? Yeah, father of many nations, right? And to guarantee that, what did he give him? And now Abraham never cashed in on this, but he knew that he would get land. Yes, the promised land. And the promised land stood as a symbol of, of that was just like a little down payment of a restoration of the whole world. And now, th- so exile moves you away from the land. It moves you away from the temple. How about the Messiah? Who is the Messiah to be in line with? The king. The king. Now the king has been taken away in shackles. That's how Second Chronicles ends. The king is taken away in shackles. Um, and so all these symbols that were supposed to be signs that say God is going to answer his promises are gone. If you're, a peop- you're the people of God, if you're Israel back then, what are you going to be saying? Your big questions are, what's going on, God? Will you ever fulfill your your promises. Will you make your promises good that you made to David and that you made to Moses and that you made to um, that you made to Abraham and that you made all the way back to Adam? Are those promises going to be good? Because it looks like you have just said we have messed up so bad that all of the even the signs that are pointing to those get wiped away. And then Jeremiah has a prophecy in the midst of exile to say it's going to be seventy years and then he'll restore. And then 70 years comes, and they're like, okay, it's not really happening because they're still in their sin. So Daniel says, ah, not 70 years, seven times 70 years. So we have this long expectation. Um, so this is what we see in the Old Testament during the exilic time, this roughly 400-year period where uh, God seems to be absent complete darkness and yet the prophets kept saying even in the midst of this god will answer just hang on and this is where faith starts to come in habakkuk is is key to that the just yes despite all the circumstances the just shall live by faith this is how we need to see uh the the new testament set up and this is why when jesus begins his ministry in luke 4 he's quoting isaiah 61 that's his first sermon in public ministry he says all those signs of the day of the Lord? <laughs> Jesus goes so far as to say, this is now fulfilled in your hearing. He rolls up the scroll and sits down and says, this now is fulfilled in your hearing. What were the elements? What would it look like when God would come back and God would answer all the promises? Does anybody, uh, you know, so it's, a, it's really asking you, do you know what Isaiah says in those passages? But anybody have a, a clue as to what Isaiah? Okay, you got prisoners free. Blind are going to see. The deaf will hear. The lame will walk. 
yeah, the dead will live again. And so what does Jesus do? He says, he reads that passage from Isaiah 61, and he says, now it's fulfilled. Does this make sense of Jesus' miracles? Sure. Jesus' miracles aren't just random. It's not just like David Blaine or Chris, who's the famous magician today? And it's not just some ma- a magician that's, that's this, you know, figured out how to do tricks and draw a big crowd. That's not what the miracles are. The miracles are, real, are the signs again to say, God didn't forget. It's now happening. Here it is. So when we read the Gospels, we shouldn't read it as um, Jesus as miracle worker in general, or even, even as if the miracles are him saying that he's God. The miracles he does are connected to the promise. You all get that? That's really that really helps us to see and read, why aren't they happening today? Well, what, what Jesus was specifically doing was tying all of those end-time promises to himself and what he was about to do. But this happened now and not yet. There's an, all n- there's a not yet component to this. Jesus came as king. But is he king? Is he president of the United States? No. Was he king? Was he head of the Roman Empire? No. He didn't come in the, but there will be a day when he will. So part of what the New Testament writers had to grapple with was the fact that all these things that the Old Testament would, said would happen, they're actually starting to happen, but they're not fully happening in a complete way. Um, and that's how we need to understand his teachings about the kingdom of God. That's how we need to understand uh, his miracles. Does that all make sense? Any, any questions about that? Thinking that way will start to unlock the Gospels in many ways. Um, this is how Jesus begins his ministry. This is how Mark begins uh, after John was arrested. This is Mark 1.15, chapter 1 of Mark. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Um, all this took a long time to understand for the, for the disciples. That's why uh, they walk around like bumbling idiots, mostly through the gospels. I mean, if you want to feel better about yourself in the Christian life, look at the disciples in the gospels. I mean, they just are clueless about all this stuff. Some of that cluelessness um, needed the Holy Spirit to come. It needed the rest of God's word. Um, But some of it was a reflection of hard hearts, people hearing God's word and not understanding. This is what the parables did. Um, The parables explained the kingdom, explained this, um, this challenge of understanding Jesus in relation to the whole rest of the story If you don't know the Old Testament, you're not going to be able to understand the parables because it's really saying all the stuff you expected to happen, it's now happening in a different way. It's and there's there's uh, that should change your expectation. Um, The parables are not illustrations. I know we love to say, "Oh, look, Jesus told stories. He did a great job of of illustrating his points with these parables." Um, That's not. Uh, why he used these parables. Listen to, to why he says he used parables. Um, if, if y'all need a handout, there, um, there should be around there. Could anybody read that bottom section? 
uh, Matthew 13, starting. Uh, the disciples, it, verse 10 is, you know, asking Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Anybody want to pick up from verse 11? Did you, um, I was about to say, did you hear what Jesus said? But <laughs> clearly you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, think about this. So often it's easy to say, yes, the, like I said, the parables are these nice illustrations. They explain things so well. Yikes. What is Jesus saying the parables, the purpose of the parables? In answer to the question by the disciples, why do you speak in parables? What's his, his response? Can anybody sum it up? Yeah, yeah. So for some, that that's one side of it. For those who will hear, you, the mysteries will get clearer. It'll it'll reveal it. But there's another side to this, where it will act as obfuscating. It will cloud things. The parables themselves are just like Jesus. You approach him, and if you don't approach him with a humble heart, if you're not in tune with listening to him, but you come with your own agenda. It's going to judge you. It's going to wind up condemning you. And it's going to lock you out. But if you come humbly and wanting to listen to Jesus, it will open up and explain. It is for those who have ears to hear. Um, Jesus ran into conflict by lots of people who thought they were God's people based on faulty reasons they thought they were God's people. And the parables hit them in the face. And they couldn't understand it. It wound up to be frustrating for them. And that this is why they, they start to get violent with Jesus. Jesus, you're saying things that should imply that you're, you're this amazing end time, but then you're also doing this other stuff that is confusing. Which is it? How come you're not marching up to, um, to Herod's palace and overtaking it and being a ruler? How come you're not going off to Rome and destroying Caesar and winning the victory? And how come you're not providing for us the material needs that are supposed to be indicative of the kingdom of God finally coming? It brings hatred to it because they're not open to hearing it. Does that make sense? I mean, that, that, is, that is a huge understanding each of the parables. The parables will explain the kingdom of God. They're, they're almost all about the kingdom of God. But if you come with the kingdom expecting it in a worldly way, um, it is going to lock you out. It, w- it will wind up um, bringing condemnation. So I have questions about that. I know that that's, that's um, 
I mean, that view of parables doesn't always get taught, but it, it is almost the consensus. It, it is how Jesus explains the parables. All right, so on one hand, it's given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. Um, the one who gets will understand more, but the one who rejects will be confused. Um, B, the parables are not illustrations, but are used in response to the old covenant an- anticipation of the kingdom of God. Remember what we talked about in covenant theology. During the Mosaic covenant, a sign that God was blessing you would be prosperity. A sign that God was cursing you or that you were sinning would be exile. And the parables um, are able to speak into that and say, that now has to change because all of Israel's hope gets tied up with Jesus and what he's done. Um, You have to unpack exactly um, the new form of what the kingdom of God is. And they're also to elicit strong responses. The parables offer a wide range of uh, imaginative and volitional responses. They call you to respond. Um, C.H. Dodd wrote it this way, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature and life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, strangeness, leaving the hearer enough, in enough doubt about its significance to tease out active thought. You're supposed to hear the parable and say, wait, what? <laughs> Which then triggers you to think. If it was easy, if it was an illustration, we'd say, oh, good, he made that point. You know, there's never like a point Jesus makes about doctrine and then says, oh, wait, let me, let me throw this parable out here to explain it. No, it's, it's, uh, it's an appetizer. It's there to say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And you're like, whoa, that's really strange. And it's drawing you in to think more about it. And if, you w- if you're coming from an expectation that's rigid, you'll say, oh, Jesus is not worth my time because I'm not really looking for that. But if you really come with, with a humble heart, then it will draw you further and it will start to unlock your heart to hearing exactly the type of kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Um, throughout church history, people have uh, interpreted them as allegories. That's been really dangerous. Um, a lot of uh, hilarious examples, which I don't have time to go into, about different what different things mean. Um, but the the yeah, so there's just a quick one. You know, the the Good Samaritan gets uh, drops off the guy on the side of the road into the hotel and gives two coins to the the innkeeper, which of course represents the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? So <laughs> allegorical interpretations, dangerous, right? Um, and parables can be ripe for that, but, but a simple rule of thumb is that there's really one point. When he's making a parable, he's really just making one point about how the kingdom of God functions. And the more we try to say, well, you know, this figure's like this and this figure represents that, um, we're going to miss the point of what Jesus is trying to get at. He's trying to talk about the kingdom of God. And so we must um, locate the point of reference in the context. Um, the point of the parable is not the point of the reference, but it's intended a response to the, the story as a whole. So Jesus uh, speaks this parable into a context that usually is his take on something that overturns the expectation. All right, real quick as we end the Gospels, picking up a lot from what we did last time, I want to take us through each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just uh, give you a sense as to what each one is like. Um, some of this can be found in a, in a study Bible, but um, 
this, this is just sort of a drive-by. What is Jesus like? We started the whole study of the Gospels. Why do we have four images? And here's a good reason why. They all had their theological emphasis. In Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the new Moses. Um, you, we can see this very clearly in the way Matthew describes the story. Remember, these guys aren't just trying to record history. They're not trying to say, yes, in June of year five, Jesus got up and did this, and in year 25, he did that. It's theologically crafted to give this message. And if you didn't know the Old Testament, you're going to miss part of this point. We see Jesus as the lawgiver. What's, what's his biggest sermon? Jesus' biggest sermon in Matthew. Sermon on the Mount. Boy, any, know anybody else who got God's law from a mountain? Moses, right? I mean, there's, there's imagery that all throughout um, Matthew that Jesus is the deliverer. What's, what's Moses' big role? It's to get people out of exile. I mean, uh, out of, so just gave it away. <laughs> just got out of Exodus. What's Jesus' role here? Getting people out of exile, restoration. And not just exile in Babylon, but exile from our sin. Jesus is the, re- is the deliverer. Salvation is talked about in Exodus themes all throughout Matthew. Um, five books of Moses. Uh, the, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Matthew, Jesus has five major discourses. This is not a coincidence. This is Matthew crafting it, saying, you need, to see, you need to start seeing Jesus this way. Because when you see Jesus this way, you're going to import all the things Moses was, was pointing to as a sign and saying, yes, it's now fulfilled. It turns Moses not into the better thing, but actually as the sign pointer. Um, we see these discourses. I put them in, there in, in um, bottom of two, in chapter 5, in chapter 10. 13, 18, and 23. These are the five main discourses. And we know that they're a formula because in each section it ends with when Jesus had finished these words. That you get, if you could step back and read the, Ma- read the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, you see that repetition in each knowing that these are, are discrete discourses. And Jesus demonstrates great continuity with the Torah. Notice he says in Matthew 5, he did not come to abolish the law uh, and the prophets but to fulfill them. It's not an expansion of the law, but an intensification. When we, when we read um, the Sermon on the Mount in particular, he's not rejecting adultery or murder. He intensifies it um, with, with our understanding of what, what sin is. And the church is the community who are taught. Um, they are disciples. So that is sort of Matthew in a nutshell. Um, knowing that will help you understand things that might sound strange otherwise. If you, didn't, if you weren't clued in, on the fact that he's got that in his background. Mark's big theme, taking up the cross, sacrifice. That is um, all throughout Mark, an emphasis on a call to discipleship and following Jesus to the cross. That's why when you read Mark, you see a lot of action and not all these big discourses. Mark doesn't go out of his way to to have these long teachings by Jesus that go several chapters long. Um, that contains very little ethical teaching. Mostly his teaching is about the kingdom of God and about the cross. The identity of Jesus is crucial. It's the question that keeps getting asked in Mark. Who do you say that I am? So who Jesus is 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 vitally important. When you read the Gospel of Mark, that's the question that keeps getting asked. 
Mark 1 tells the reader that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But throughout the whole gospel, none of the other characters pick that up. We get to know it right from the beginning, which is great. And that's why we get to laugh at the disciples, because we get clued in. Um, but they are learning that throughout. Um, the only other person who knows that is the demons. They figure it out. Um, but this provides attention as we read it of what they know and what we know. And throughout the first half, Jesus seems powerful and successful. But then the second half of the gospel, it seems uh, it, it totally changes as he, he works his triumph differently. <laughs> he, he heads to the cross. And the disciples, of course, throughout this have no faith and they're fearful. Um, anybody know how the gospel of, of Mark ends? And f- huh? Yeah, and they were afraid. It actually ends in the word gar, which is for, which all, uh, drives scholars crazy because they think that they're trying to, he's, he didn't get to fit. As if Mark is like writing the end, he writes for, uh, and like, <laughs> that was it. Um, but it's abrupt, and that's how the whole of Mark is. It's very abrupt, and it's about, f- you know, the reaction to it is fear. Fear, one hand, of persecution, but also fear that, um, that this is God, that, you know, in, in awe of who he is. Mark's style from that gets very choppy and abrupt. Luke, um, the power of the Spirit. I mean, if you study Acts, there's so much a continuity of this. You see this, the Spirit now outward, but um, see the parallel. What is this teaching us now? If, uh, if Acts is all about the Spirit at work in the church, and Jesus, and, and Luke is about the Spirit at work in Jesus, you see what Luke is doing in that, is saying, now you are fulfilling Jesus's role here. You are, uh, Jesus is now alive and active through the church by the power of the same spirit that worked in him is now at work in you. Read Acts like that and you'll start seeing all the connections. It'll start to make sense. That's the theme in Luke, the power of the spirit. Luke's narrative is a continuation of the Old Testament biblical history. Jesus's life is full of fulfillment. All the promises are coming to fulfillment in Jesus. Um, the emphasis falls on less as Moses as lawgiver and more on Moses as prophet and liberator. And uh, salvation is a huge key word. And Luke m- is more world affirming, which means that he is more than any other gospel starting to clue in on the fact that even in the gospel, the, this message is to, to go to all nations. Okay, setting up for Acts, right? Where you actually see that at work. So hearing Jesus talk about the message to Gentiles warms you up for what will happen in the book of Acts. Luke's style is intellectual, um, well-written, well-constructed, much harder Greek to, to read, um, whereas John is, is like baby Greek. Very, you don't have to study Greek long to get John. And then finally, John. John writes, he tells us why he writes. He says he writes that you may believe. He's concerned throughout with belief so much more, very much different than the other four Gospels on the emphasis of faith and belief. Jesus is God in the flesh. The temple is a huge, it starts from the very beginning. Jesus is almost starts his ministry with the temple where the other three Gospels end it in the temple. And that theme of temple works its way all throughout John. Um, love is a central theme in the community. And the world, rather than um, being world-affirming, is much more the world as an enemy, uh, showing that side of it. Um, but in so much to say that the most famous passage in, in John 3.16, God so loved the world, 
has a lot of punch when you understand that it is representative of the dark forces. And John uses symbolism um, to attract big concepts, big concepts like life and truth and love. So I know that's a, a quick flyby before through all four Gospels, but now you see the richness. These Gospel writers were like writing long sermons about Jesus. That's, that's how you should approach the Gospels, not trying to get behind them to what really happened. And they're all telling you what really happened, but, they're, but it's the way they're telling you that is really important, and it, and it shapes how we should think about Jesus and his ministry. All right, that was real quick. Any questions on that before we move to Paul? Yeah. Right, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's wonderful how it all fits together. There's a lot of, we, we talked about this our first uh, lesson a couple weeks ago on is there priority between one? Did, did they know each other? And I think there's clear dependence, um, but it's not always clear who is depending on who. But yeah, you're right. It's we, if we only had one, we get a smaller picture, and it's, it's glorious. Now, the temptation is to harmonize them. But when we harmonize them, what happens? Yeah, you miss something. If you start mixing in uh, uh, you know, Matthew's long discourses into Mark, you miss all the punchiness. You miss the, how powerful it is. to. You miss the fear. If you have this long resurrection account that Luke has and you put it into Mark's ending, you, you miss the power of the abruptness of leaving in fear of the empty tomb. Um, yeah, so, you know, harmonization sometimes is helpful to understand, okay, yes, this really is a person and this is a lot of consistency here, but you miss the, the theological emphasis of reading them by themselves. All right, buckle up, Paul. Paul is hugely important. 13 of the 27 New Testament books are written by Paul. A key source, not the only source of justification by faith alone, but a key source for that, um, understanding this. And he's writing in uh, epistolary nature, which is in letters, very different from the Gospels. In that way, you always feel like you're reading somebody else's mail. You are. Um, Now, it is your mail because you're the church, and he's writing to the church. So never mistake that this doesn't apply to you. It always needs to bring a challenge to you, but you have to contextualize what he's saying. All right. For risk of repetition, we got to go back into eschatology. Think again about the fact that we are in exile as a Jewish people. as God's people are uh, of the mentality that there's trouble, that all the signs of what God came to fulfill seem to be falling away. Now, how did, how did um, early Christians respond to Jesus? Was it plight to solution, or was it solution to plight? Um, was it they knew there was a problem, and then when Jesus came, it was the, aha, finally, the solution to our problem, or was it Jesus came, solution, whoa, if he rose from the dead, then maybe there was a problem. Oh, wait, there is a problem. <laughs> okay, which is it? <laughs> not not asking, yeah. You're, I, uh, I, think, I think how you answer that question um, will start to bias you in how you approach Paul's letters. If you think that there was no problem, 
but then Jesus provides a solution, and then you have to figure out the problem. How would you view Judaism of the first century? Remember, no problem. Jesus then, in the resurrection, says there's a solution. How would you, how would you view Judaism of the first century? Okay, good. So some knew, right, some knew. Oftentimes, and especially, I, I think this has gotten debunked a bit, but oftentimes this is where we get the, the sense that, well, they were a bunch of self-righteous legalists. If you're a legalist, there's not much of a problem, right? You have the law, you're fulfilling the law. But then the gospel comes to you and says, no, you're really a sinner. <laughs> or th- the gospel comes and says, well, Jesus died for your sins. And you say, well, if Jesus died for your sins... That means I'm a sinner. <laughs> That's how I became a Christian, actually. <laughs> I, I didn't understand that I was a sinner until I figured out why Jesus came. I figured out Jesus came to die for sinners, and I said, oh, well, that must mean I'm a sinner. <laughs> and, and then I understood sin in a completely different way. But if you're in tune as John the Baptist is with the plight, if you say, if you're calling out, God, you need to do something because we are in trouble and all your promises seem to, to be at risk. Um, you don't look to the law and say, I'm fulfilled, I'm satisfied. You'll look to say, Jesus, come and justify me because I, ca- I can't. And so that's, that's the big question. Uh, how is Paul presenting the gospel? Uh, and what was he? What was he on the road to Damascus? Was he, a self, was he self-righteous? Was he content? Or did he see that there was a plight that needed a solution? Um, that question is, is, um, is really helpful to think about when we approach um, who he is and, and how he thought about the story of Israel. Traditionally, scholars have said that Paul was self-righteous, who didn't uh, realize that salvation was by faith and not by works, and his conversion then revealed this latent problem. Um, and then, you know, solution came, I get the, pr- I get the problem. Um, Others said that he's actually acutely aware of the Israel's problem. He's acutely aware of exile, and he hoped that one day that God would provide the solution, plight to solution. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. The answer is probably that he did think that there was a problem, but whenever he heard about the church, he didn't think that was the answer. I mean, clearly he didn't think that was the answer. What does he do to the church? In, in Acts chapter 7, he, he stands there, at chapter 8, he stands there mocking Stephen as he's getting stoned, and he leads this persecution. What is he doing? Well, some would say that, you know, what's, what was the church at that time? It's largely Jewish. Saying, well, here are these supposed covenant holders, and what are they starting to do now? Well, they're not getting circumcised, and they're following after this Jesus guy. These Jews need to, I mean, Paul was never against Gentiles. He didn't attack Gentiles. He was always going after the, the Jewish, uh, those who were Jewish and claiming to now leave the Jewish faith. If you think about that from the Mosaic Covenant point of view, he's almost right to say, wait a second, if you start abandoning the law, God's going to punish us even more. Exile is going to be another 500 years. What changes for Paul? How does Paul convert? Encounter with Jesus. Encounter with the living Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, no, persecute Jewish Christians, 
because they're starting to leave the wall. He's got letters from the synagogue to condemn them. And now he sees Jesus Christ resurrected. In Paul's mind, he says, whoa, resurrection is a sign that Jesus has come. If Jesus has come, then I'm wrong. And he it totally unearths his entire world. It doesn't change his expectation that God would answer, but it radically says now he has answered. He has fulfilled this. Jesus, this is why resurrection is a huge theme in Paul, because that is the key to saying God has come. It's no longer on us now to rally as a covenant people and be good. That was the thought. If we could just be covenant faithful, then God would bring about his redemption. Paul says, no, it's already happened. The day of the Lord has arrived because Jesus, I saw him alive, who I knew he was dead. And that quickly he converts. I know that was a lot. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? So, so it radically changes, the solution radically changes it, but it also, he did understand there was a plight, and it fits. It fits so perfectly, but he would have never anticipated it fitting quite like that. The sign was always going to be that God's people would raise from the dead, and he just didn't think it was going to be happening to one person in the middle of time, not all the Jews at the end of time. And that changed how he, he, he approached this. Um, all right, so page five. Um, all right, I just cruised through all of that. The law. What does this mean for the law then? The law and justification. What does Paul mean by law? For Paul, it meant Torah. It didn't mean principle. It didn't mean being a good person. Uh, f when Paul used the word law, it didn't mean like the law of Connecticut or anything like that. It meant Mosaic law, the, the Mosaic covenant. And obeying the law before Christ meant that um, something was, uh, that, so that we were being faithful to the covenant if you obeyed the law. The prophets weren't going around saying, hey, abandon the law. Don't follow it. Just live by faith. Because they had covenant obligations. Now, they were saved by their faith. They weren't saved by their covenant obligations, but that modeled it out. Realize I'm, I'm risking getting into murkiness here, so stop me if I'm, if I'm losing you. Um, but Paul, at that time, with, uh, uh, before, before Christ, was just like the Old Testament prophets in saying, covenant faithfulness, the law, is a good thing that we need to hold on to. Um, if if only for a placeholder until Christ comes. A major issue in the early church was the question of what now with the Mosaic law? If Jesus now has come, if the last day has arrived, if, if we're at the end of days, then what do we do about the Mosaic law? Should we obey it because that's what we were supposed to do as a covenant keeper? Or should we leave it? Um, Paul wants to argue that they, as the people of God, even if they're Gentiles, are organically connected to the Old Testament people of God. They are the new Israel. But they're in a different place redemptive his historically. Under the Mosaic Covenant, they needed to get circumcised and they needed to follow it as a sign of their faithfulness. But now Christ had, was the true Israel, the complete fulfillment. The law then doesn't come as something they needed to fulfill or live into but something that was completely fulfilled. 
The land doesn't hold the same importance. The temple doesn't hold the same importance. The king doesn't hold the same importance. Why? Because Jesus is the land. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the king. He's the one that fulfills all those signs drift away. What about the moral law? What about all those things that they tell you how to be, you know, the Ten Commandments? Well, they now get to be lived not as a way we can keep covenant faithfully to keep in the land, but as a way of honoring God, as a, as a way to say, oh, yes, that actually goes back to how it was designed and created. Your approach to the law is not one that will, it will condemn you, but one now you can walk through with joy. Um, so is the law bad? Scholars have made Paul sound like he's against the law. Um, hopefully, you're not getting that sense from, um, from Galatians. His point there was that if you hold the law without Christ, or if you hold the law as the, the means of your salvation, it will, con- it will condemn you. But if you're saved in Christ, you're, you're completely redeemed. The law then can become a guide for living. It can become not anything to earn your salvation, but as how God has designed us to live. It will start, um, he will say that, you know, the law is now written on our hearts, echoing um, Jeremiah's prophecy. And he will say, okay, well, that's in my heart. How will I know that I'm following uh, the spirit in my heart and not following my sinful desires? Well, the law can guide us to say, yeah, that's actually in line with what the law has always said. Um, any questions about the law? I'm going to move sort of quickly from that. Um, thinking about how that um, affects now eschatology. Well, New Testament eschatology, um, Israel saw um, this one hope that uh, the kingdom would come Christ would bring forgiveness for his people and judgment. Um, that judgment day has now been moved forward and it's been put on Christ. How do you know that Christ will judge you as righteous on the last day? How do you know? How do you know that Christ, that, 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 um, that God at his judgment throne will say you are justified on the last day when you die or when he comes back? By faith, okay. Faith in what? Okay. Um, yeah, point to Jesus, exactly. But those are, that was a, 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 uh, a temple metaphor. How do I know I'm going to be justified? How do I know that he will legally declare me justified? Okay, good, his word, yes, right, his word. But do we have anything more than his word? And, and what's the cross? Yeah. Right, right. So where are the sins you're going to bring at Judgment Day? They already faced their Judgment Day. Where's your righteousness? It's already been declared to Jesus as in the resurrection. Where's your judgment day? All of it's already happened on Jesus. This is the whole New Testament. Paul will say, you know, it'll be easy to just um, pass by 
the fa- seemingly thousands of times that, G- that uh, Paul will say, you are in Christ. You ever run into that and say, why do he keep saying in Christ? Well, that's what a Christian is. We're in Christ. We're engrafted. Our identity is with him. The payoff of that is that Christ now has gone through judgment day. The cross condemned, legally condemned sin, our sin. Our sin has already gone through judgment day. It has already been punished to the pit of hell. His resurrection is the ultimate vindication. It's a sign of God's um, declaration of righteousness. If we're in Christ, we know that's going to be our declaration because it has now happened in Christ. Being in Christ now says, I know, not just because of his word, not just because of what he did, but because what that meant in how God spelled out judgment day, that it's now, and that I can now face that judgment fully assured because I'm in Christ. That's the gospel. That's justifi- That's why he says you are justified, not, hey, you know, hopefully he's going to justify you. That's not, you know, there, there is now, therefore, a great possibility that you're going to be okay at judgment. No, there is now, now for no condemnation in Christ Jesus because he's dealt with the, the, the law um, and the condemnation of it. Um, all right, page seven. Um, why does he give commandments still? Well, um, Paul is not inconsistent. Uh, he will always work in the indicative an imperative. The indicative is this is who you are. The imperative is this is how you should now live. Um, Romans 6 is sort of the classic of this, saying you are dead in your sins. And then you look around and say, okay, uh, Paul, I'm still sinning. <laughs> What's the problem here? You just said I'm dead in sin. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, no. Then you read the rest of, of Romans 6, and he keeps telling him, don't live like you're not dead to it. So indicative, you are this, you are justified, you are dead to your sins, now don't, now live like that, imperative. Live as if, live as what you are. Those two are vital, they're always connected. He never tells you to live something that you're not already in Christ and and made into. And he doesn't just leave the indicative out there without saying, therefore, now you should live like this. They're always joined and they're always in that order. Indicative imperative. You are this. This is now how you should live. Reading Paul and his ethical treatment, it's always th- that. It's always grounded in our justification, always grounded in who we are in Christ. Flesh and spirit. Guys, I just preached on all that, so I'm skipping it. Um, and lastly, how to read epistles. Again, it's reading other people's mail, um, but... It's also reading your mail. If we read it as somebody else's, um, we have to, we, we will not get the fact that we have the same problems as them. We have the same problems as the Galatians. We have the same problem as the Corinthians. We're human like them. We're Christians like them. We need the gospel like them. And we need the, to see those letters as our letters in as much as we also need to figure out uh, the context of what's being said. Um, and God's word uh, to us is the same as his word to them. Um, and then follow the argument. Paul, um, or whoever is writing the letter, is not just making a series of aphorisms. I mean, Galatians 6, most people 
uh, a lot of scholars think he's just coming up with a bunch of aphorisms that it, they don't seem connected in any way. But you start to see the whole context, and you say, oh, wait, no, there's a whole thing he's doing here with the spirit and the flesh. And it's, if you see it connected to what he does in chapter 5, you'll see that these aren't just little proverbs that he's giving in chapter 6. These are actually part of the entire narrative that he has. Um, so mostly uh, people who write epistles, who are writing these letters, the New Testament authors, are making an argument. So pay attention to clauses. The therefore, find out what it's there. <laughs> I hate that one. Um, I think I've yet to use that in a sermon, that, uh, that cheesy line. Um, but there will come a day, maybe. Um, and they help to unpack this, the logical argument because they, these writers are not trying to be confusing. They're trying to be clear. It's us who sometimes miss the context of it all um, that need that clarity. So, okay, questions? That's the New Testament, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's that's great. That's great for epistles. It's also yeah. I mean, reading Romans in one sitting, all of a sudden you'll start realizing, oh, there's major themes here that I didn't even think about. Um, reading the Gospels in one sitting, reading the Old Testament narratives in one sitting, um, it's a lot, guys. Um, it, there's no shame in using the New Living Translation. Uh, it makes it easier to read. Sometimes you use the other translations for the microscopic thing, but if you want to get a big, you know, New Living Translation is not the New Living Bible. That's a paraphrase. Um, the New Living Translation is actually a translation, but it's just um, just easier to read. It's at a, at a, so it means it, it fudges some of the details, but it makes it easier to read large swaths. Um, reading things in one sitting is just a really wonderful way to approach uh, scripture. Other questions? All right. Um, next week we're going to have a special Sunday school on uh, mercy, what it means to do mercy as we um, continue to think about Impact Week. Um, for those of you who are here for the Impact Leaders meeting, um, those who have gotten the email about that, um, we are going to be across from the parlor upstairs in the lecture room. Uh, otherwise, uh, let me close this in prayer. Um, and just a reminder, it is a uh, not cafe, it's a fast today. So, uh, or you can, yes, yes, or as the Bible says, let them eat cake. Wait, no. Uh, all right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that uh, it is rich, um, that it's not just something we can approach um, and master in one sitting. We thank you that there's depth to it and complexity. Um, but we also ask that you give us uh, help in understanding it. Guide us, Lord. Bless us. And help us to remember that we're not alone as we do this, but we have the community of the saints who've gone before us, and we have those around us in this community 